So last week, Chet talked about the outline of some of the letters and visits that, that Paul made to Corinth. And I just want to recap that a little bit because it definitely comes into play here. So in Acts 18, we see that Paul made a visit to Corinth. Uh, then he wrote a letter to Corinth, uh, and this probably happened uh, while he was in Ephesus, which is in Acts 19. This letter is lost. So that first letter that he wrote to the church at Corinth, uh, we don't have a record of it. So we don't really know exactly what was in it. But we do see a reference to it in 1 Corinthians. And then he wrote a second letter to the church at Corinth, which we have as 1 Corinthians in our Bible. Uh, this was probably a year or two later after that first letter while he was still in Ephesus. And then he made a visit to Corinth, his uh, second visit there. And this is what a lot of people call a painful visit, just uh, a really hard visit. It was um, probably a relatively short visit, uh, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. And then he wrote a third letter to the, uh, the church at Corinth. This is called uh, the Letter of Tears or the Severe Letter. Again, this is another one that we don't have a copy of um, probably because it was so uh, severe and intense in the way that it addressed them, but also it was probably fairly specific to that situation in the church at Corinth. Um, this, this letter was apparently carried by Titus to the church, and, that's, uh, and we'll come back to uh, that's why Titus is mentioned here. But this letter is also lost. We don't have a copy of it. But then we have our fourth letter to the church at Corinth, which we have as 2 Corinthians, which we're looking at now. And then after this letter, Paul does make another visit to Corinth, which we see recorded in Acts 20. So just kind of have that timeline of uh, the letters and the visits in your head as we work through this. So he may, at the end of chapter 1, he says that his plans had changed, that through these visits, the things that he had planned to do didn't quite go uh, the way he'd anticipated, but there was a reason for it. And we start in at verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, For I made up my mind not to make another visit to you again, or another painful visit to you. So this painful visit was the visit between First uh, Corinthians and Second Corinthians, what we call First and Second Corinthians. This is this painful visit um, that we're going to see talked about here, and starting in verse five. But he refrained from coming to them again uh, for the reasons that we just read through here. He wanted to uh, he wanted to make sure that his visit would be effective and would be. Uh, uh, it would be a happy visit rather than a painful, another painful one. Because Paul, and you see in verse 2, he says, For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one who I have pained? So he had a great love for them. He wanted to be with them, but he didn't want to cause pain by his visit because he had harsh things that had to be said. And he wanted to do that not when he was there in person with them, but by a, a letter. But he was committed to their well-being. He wasn't going to let these things slide. He was going to deal with them. Um, so he said that he wrote this letter of tears, the one that we've talked about between First and Second uh, Corinthians, uh, this severe letter. Um, knowing how Paul writes in the letters that we do have preserved, I'm not sure I'd want to read a severe letter from Paul because it would probably be pretty intense. Um, because his, his letters that we do have preserved are so powerful to us now I can't imagine if they were addressed even more severe to me in particular. Um, that would uh, that'd be a pretty painful letter to read. But what we probably know, what we can guess from this letter, it was a likely a rebuking letter, and it was correcting events that happened when he made that painful visit. Apparently when he came, some bad things happened that were targeted at him. And so he left, and then he wrote this letter to correct those things. 
But that, you know, again, that letter is not scripture. It has been lost to us. But as we see in in verse 4, he says, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. And that's one of the key characteristics of love. You know, we had Valentine's Day yesterday. Love is not that everything is rosy and everything is great. Love means that when things are wrong, that you still correct. Especially if you're in a position like Paul, you just don't let the bad things keep going. You work on them. You fix them. Love compels us to tell the truth. And it compels us to correct, not ignore, even when things are difficult. So moving on into verse 5. So we've had this correction uh, through this painful letter that, uh, that Paul wrote to them. But now we get into the subject of forgiveness. So he says, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. So what is he talking about here? He doesn't give a lot of details in this letter, but from what we know and what we can figure out from a couple of different sources is that something had happened that had caused a very specific, that was targeted at Paul. Uh, We see in several other places in Scripture that people had questioned his apostolic authority. And what we think is that that may have been the case here. Now, let me back up a second. Uh, A lot of people uh, look at uh, this person that he's referring to in this uh, 2 Corinthians 2 as maybe the same person that's in 1 Corinthians 5. You remember the guy who was sleeping with his stepmom and not a very good situation for a lot of different reasons. Um, And this is something that probably won't happen at most churches, but I'm going to do it because we've talked about it. If you go back and listen to Chet's message from back then, he made a comment that maybe it was the same person. We've talked about it since then, and we are both on the same page now that probably not. It's a different, the circumstances are different. So what we're seeing here in in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians is not talking about that same guy. There's a different guy. The church of Corinth has plenty of problems that need to be worked on. So uh, there's no shortage of things for Paul to address. So, uh, So some people, you know, and that... There may be, that's still a somewhat justifiable position, but I think more than likely this is a different person, and for a couple of different reasons. Um, What we see from this is that the person that he's referring to in 2 Corinthians 2 is likely a person who is a ringleader of opposition against Paul. That's probably what caused that visit to be so painful, is that Paul was there and there was somebody leading opposition against him, saying, you're not a true apostle. All these things that we've seen uh, throughout Paul's ministry uh, of people opposing him. Um, but he is, even with that, he is very restrained. He could have called this person's name out, but he doesn't. Now, Paul's not afraid to do that. Um, if you look at second, uh, let's see, it's 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. So Paul's not afraid to call you out. You know, if, if you're opposed to Paul, he's going to let, you, he's going to let some people know. So don't think that Paul is uh, afraid or hiding behind a letter to write these things, because he will call you out. Um, but that he doesn't do that here, probably because the person that he's referring to in 2 Corinthians 2, is a believer. He's a part of the church. And if and let, we'll look at the rest of what he says here, but building toward restoration. So 
Even though in this painful visit, Paul was targeted, there was direct opposition to him, it affected the whole church. And if you've been in church long enough, you'll know that that happens. That if something is targeted at one person, there's some type of opposition, even if it's just between two people. I, I think Chet mentioned it last week, that these a church split over where they put a refrigerator. Now, probably there was a lot more going on, but it came to a head with that refrigerator. You know, So that, that disagreement, that argument between just a few people split a church. I've seen it happen. You know, and sometimes it's a leader, sometimes it's someone else. So when we, we'll get a few more details about this in chapter 7, uh, but there's, even there, there's not a whole lot. Um, so we're still left trying to figure out this, what exactly happened. But the important thing to see is that sin affects the person committing the sin, obviously. The target, if it's a sin that's targeted at another person, it affects them. But it also affects the at- entire church. This idea of collateral damage. You know, when our military drops a bomb somewhere, yes, it hits the target, but it also affects a lot of other things. And sin is the same way. It doesn't just affect us or the person doing it. But what we see in verse 6, it says, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. The church responded to his letter, this severe letter. So they had this bad visit, then you had this severe letter, and the, Paul, and the church said, Okay, we hear you, Paul, and they addressed it. They did what they needed to do. Um, and we, talk, we call this church discipline. When somebody within the church is doing something uh, that is wrong, whether it's theologically wrong, they're just in sin or something like that, we have this practice of church discipline that probably we don't see too much, um, which is sometimes a good thing, but sometimes it's a bad thing because people need that discipline in their life and they don't get it. Um, but the goal of all church discipline is restoration, is to bring the person back in, uh, to correct whatever is going on in their life. And this punishment that Paul talks about here was likely excommunication because there's a progression. There's a progression of if someone is wrong, you go to them. If they don't respond to you, you go with someone else. If they don't respond to that, you bring the leaders of the church together. And if they don't respond to that, then you bring it to the whole church and eventually that person can be removed from the church. Because if somebody is that rebellious, you can't have them constantly seeding rebellion and problems within the church. And so that's likely what happened. But the cool thing that happened is that it didn't stop there. Now, we can't ignore flagrant sin. You know, sometimes we think, well, if we just don't talk about it, we just ignore it, it'll go away. Well, that's rarely the case. It just usually keeps building up and building up until it really becomes a problem. Most churches, I think, ignore those types of things, and it really hurts the church. But what Paul tells them in verse 7, he tells them, he says, in verse 6, he said, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. In other words, don't overdo it, okay? He's like, you've done it, he's heard your message, he has responded to it, He has sought forgiveness. He has come back. Restore that person. Love on them. Comfort them. You know, it's it's like when you're a parent. You know, you don't enjoy disciplining your children. I don't know if if you do, there's probably something wrong with you. Okay? No one enjoys disciplining their children, but it's necessary. You have to do it. Um, But then when the child has been corrected, you stop. You say, all right, 
the child has learned, you move on. But then Paul tells them in verse 8 and 9, he says, So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. So for our love, in this case, their love for Paul, and ultimately our love for Christ leads to obedience, even when it's against kind of the natural desire that we have. This person had hurt Paul, had it hurt the church, and a lot of times we want revenge, we want to punish that person. But that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to restore that person uh, once they've repented and then move on. And our love for them and for Christ calls us to do those things that may be counter to what we naturally want to do. Forgiveness is costly. It's difficult. Um, If forgiveness was easy, everybody would do it, uh, as they say. This uh, Gallup uh, did a poll um, recently, and they said uh, just half, Just half of American Christians agreed with the statement, God's grace enables me to forgive people who have hurt me. Just half. I was like, well, how did the rest of y'all forgive people? You know, because without God, how do we how do we forgive people? Uh, In his book, Provocations, Kierkegaard concludes to forgive sins is divine, not only in the sense that no one is able to do it except God, but also because no one can do it without God. Remember when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven? And they said, well, nobody can forgive sins but God. It's like, well, you're right. That's why I just did it. (laughs) But God working through us, through the Holy Spirit in us, allows us to be able and enables us to be able to forgive other people. You know, it's not something that we have to necessarily muster up of our own. It's through the grace of God that we can forgive people. So in this case, even though the offense... Uh, had been targeted at Paul, Paul did give his personal forgiveness to this person, but he did it for the sake of the church because Paul was used to it. You know, he's used to having darts thrown at him and being beat and being run out of town, Uh, but he did it for the sake of the church and he did it publicly for the sake of the church. But there is a difference between forgiveness and restoration. Now, as believers, forgiveness is expected of us. It's required of us. Um, Even if the other person doesn't repent, even if the other person never admits that they were wrong, even if the other person continues to hurt you, you still have to forgive them. But restoration is a different thing. If you're in a relationship and that person continues to hurt you, you don't restore that relationship. You may forgive them, but you don't let them back in your life. It's, It's like with a church. If that person continues to seed rebellion and sin in the life of the church, you may forgive that person, but you don't bring them back in until they've repented of that, until there's been a correction there. It's the same with our life. It's the same with the church. Um, It's just not wise to restore an unrepentant person into your life or into your church because they will continue to hurt you. You forgive them. You love them. You do what you can for them. But the intimacy has to be, there has to be some barriers there. Satan can use this grief over the conflict, can use the sin, can even use church discipline as a weapon against believers. And Paul recognizes this. He says, 
so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Well, in other translations, we are not ignorant of his schemes. And I think schemes is probably, for us, carries a little more context. It's like, all right, Satan is scheming to get us. And he will use even things within the church to get us. And this is... The issues that we have with others within the church could be a tool for Satan against this church. You hear that? The problems that we have with each other, if we don't deal with them, Satan can use those against our church. And so I encourage you, if there are things that you need, if it's a matter of forgiveness or restoration or whatever it is, deal with it. Because it doesn't just affect you. It doesn't just affect the other person. It can affect the whole church. Paul makes a little bit of a, a, a turn here at verse 12. Um, he says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. And what was this? Titus was probably the one who carried that severe letter, that letter of tears to the church at Corinth. And so Titus would have been a first-hand witness to how the church responded to it. You know, he would have been like, hey, they read your letter, they took it to heart, they dealt with it. Or they said, you know what, they just tossed that out and they didn't pay any attention to it. So until Paul had caught up with Titus, he didn't know what had happened in Corinth. So he tells, you know, he went to look for him at Troas where they were probably scheduled to meet. He wasn't there. And so Paul is obviously concerned for Titus because he calls him his brother. You know, they, they minister together. But it was also a concern for the church at Corinth because until he met up with Titus, he didn't really know what had happened. He didn't know if things took a good turn or a bad turn. Uh, but the other thing that I see here is that Paul is torn between two good, important things. He says that uh, 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 he went to Troas to preach the gospel and a door was opened for him. Most people who are preaching the gospel, when, when they use the language like, hey, a door was opened for us, they're going to sit there and preach until they have to move on to something else. So that was obviously a good thing. He had been to Troas a couple of times before that we see in Acts 16 and, verse tw- and also in uh, chapter uh, 20. Uh, this one was a very short visit, so it's not mentioned there. But So he had this opportunity to preach the gospel or to track down Titus and find out what had happened at Corinth. So two good, important things. And I think that we can probably weigh with that. Our, our world, through the news, through uh, social media, through just our lives, we're surrounded by a ton of good, important things. And we often have to choose, all right, where am I going to give my money? Where am I going to give my time? Where am I just... It's hard to care about everything, you know? It's hard to be outraged about everything. And so we have to have some wisdom about how do we pick what are the things that we're going to be most concerned about that we're really going to try to make a difference in. Uh, And this is what Paul had to do. Paul, very important person during this time. He didn't have email. He didn't have automobiles. If he wanted to go somewhere, he walked. Uh, So to make a decision to go from one place to another was not a minor decision. Uh, that's why he often stayed in some places for, uh, for several years because travel was not the easiest thing to do. Um, so if Paul was torn between these two things and had to make a hard decision, uh, you know, certainly that can give us some wisdom for how we should make decisions about what are the things that we will be, uh, the different things that we can address, the different things that we can focus our life on. And then verse 14, 
We've had this time of correction. We've had uh, this where he talks about forgiveness and restoration. But then ultimately it points to victory. He says, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. So this picture that he's drawn is of a Roman uh, triumph, uh, triumph or procession. Usually after a military leader would come back from a victory, he would come marching back into his hometown. He would, there would be incense and flowers and parades. It was you know, a very festive occasion. Um, this was something that would have been very common to them because they were under Roman rule uh, at the time. And he has this idea of garlands and flowers and incense, uh, the sweet aroma, which also has the context of the sweet aroma of a sacrifice being offered. So all of that's coming into play here. It says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to other, a fragrance from life to life. So as we as believers, wherever we go, Proclaiming Christ, we are carrying His fragrance, the aroma of Christ, uh, of His victory wherever we go. I was like, oh, that's that's pretty cool. These these processions were really festive and exciting events, um, especially if you were the victor. You know, if we we had the Super Bowl just a couple of weeks ago. You know, after they get back to, um, I guess they got back to Boston. There's a big parade for them. There's floats. You know, there's ticker tape flying everywhere. You know, it's a really festive occasion. They do it after the World Series, all those types of things. Well, imagine if the Seattle Seahawks also had to go in that parade as the losers. You know, okay, can you picture that? It's like, okay, here's the victors. All right, there's the losers. And they had to march in that parade. Could you imagine how miserable that would be? That's basically what happened in these Roman triumphs. The captives from the opposing army would be led in the parade with them just as trophies of like, here are the people that we captured. And then at the end of the parade, they would be executed. That fragrance of aroma and incense, for some people it meant victory, it meant life. But for others, it meant death. They knew at the end of this parade, I'm going to die. The associate, you know, smell, the sense of smell is the closest associated with memory. So for some people, that smell is associated with life and victory. Others, it's associated with death. It's like yesterday we had Valentine's Day. Anybody get flowers? Okay, some people got flowers. We don't, it's hard for us to do flowers because our cat will eat them and get sick. So, um, uh, so and I have allergies, so we don't do flowers. But, you know, you have roses and things like that you associate with Valentine's Day and anniversaries and stuff like that. But then also, if, if you had to go to several funerals or something like that, there are flowers there. And so sometimes the smell of flowers you associate with that. It's the same smell, but there's different associations with it. Some people are hardened when they hear preaching. Some people respond, but some people are hardened by it when they, see, when they hear preaching, when they see uh, the work of God through miracles. When they see God's people doing good work, they respond to it very negatively. It was, it's hard for us to imagine, but we look at Scripture. When Moses went to Pharaoh, said, let my people go. When he showed all these wonders, 
Pharaoh's heart was hardened and refused to do what Moses had called him to do until the very end. And even after that, he still went after him. When the rich young man came to Jesus in Mark 10, he said, hey, I've been doing everything good. What do I need to do to really be right with God? And he told him, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. And the man walked away. He was hardened by that. He's like, because he had a lot of stuff and he didn't want to give that up. When the Pharisees saw Jesus heal people, he healed a man on the Sabbath. I mean, it was a legitimate miracle right in front of him. man that couldn't use his hand could then use his hand. And everybody's like, wow, that's a miracle. What did the Pharisees do? How can we kill this guy? He's trouble. I'm sorry. If I see somebody perform a legitimate miracle right in front of me, I'm going to be skeptical, but I'm, also, I'm not going to plot to kill him immediately. You know, I'm going to go, all right, let's, let's, let's examine this for a minute. You know, the Pharisees were dead set. They're like, no, we're taking this guy out. Jesus forces people to face the realities of death and eternity. The questions of their life. The big questions. And a lot of people like to go through their whole lives not dealing with the big questions. They say, you know, I'm just going to try to figure out what I'm going to do tomorrow. But Jesus doesn't, that doesn't cut it with Jesus. He makes you deal with the hard things. And if you're not going to be willing to deal with the hard things, then you don't want to deal with Jesus. And so people, when they come in contact with him, are hardened. When they come in contact with believers who are doing great things, it's like, well, I can't really criticize what they're doing, but, you know, I really wish they weren't Christians. You know, when, when Christians are down there dealing with Ebola, it's like, well, I like that they're down there, but man, I don't really like they're preaching the gospel. You know, that's hard, you know, but that's the way some people are. You know, no matter what Christians do, they're like, well, that's all right, but I really wish they weren't telling people about Jesus while they're doing it. Well, sorry, you know, they kind of go together. And he ends by saying, who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. So use this word peddlers. And the context for that is really the idea of people who make wine, vintners or tavern keepers. And what they would do is they would mix their wine with some water or something else to dilute it out, to stretch it out, to increase their profits. Um, and so that's what he's talking about, these people who would try to use the gospel for their own personal gain. You know, whether it's mixing in our own philosophies or our own speculations or even outright false teachings with God's revelation. It happened then, and it certainly happens a lot now, um, that people would want to use this for their own benefit. Now, you may see this for-profit here, uh, you know, trying to... Uh, to make money through the gospel. Now, this is not, uh, as I've talked about before, this is not a prohibition on ministers getting material support. Uh, back in 1 Corinthians 9, I talked through that passage, and even though there are times that Paul declined to receive financial support from the people that he was ministering to, he at the same time makes the case that it is perfectly legitimate to receive compensation for that. Uh, and if you want to go back and listen to it, uh, you can get the podcast for that. So he's not prohibiting material support for ministers. 
But what he is going after is people who would manipulate people using the gospel or some variation on the gospel to make money for themselves. And he says, who is adequate or who is sufficient for these things? Well, the short answer is nobody. Um, and that's a pretty clear uh, statement. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he talks about people like this. He says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound works, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with a doctrine confirming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So there are people who like to dig into things in such a way, saying, well, if I do it, if I, if I, you know, it could mean this, and if it means that, that helps me out. And so if, if you're trying to manipulate Scripture to say what you want it to say for your benefit, you're almost always going to be wrong. You have to say, what does Scripture say to me, and how does that change what I am, or who I am, what I believe? It's not the other way around. You know, when we talk through our foundations about what is our view of Scripture, are you over Scripture or is Scripture over you? It has to be that Scripture is over you. Uh, it has to be what guides your decisions, not you twisting Scripture into what you want it to be. The truth is, and the answer to the rhetorical question that Paul asked, who is sufficient for these things? No one. No one is adequate and no one is, is sufficient apart from God. No one can do the things that a, a believer is supposed to do, especially a leader, a preacher, a teacher, someone who ministers in the name of Christ. No one can do that apart from Him. You can be a great preacher. I've heard some people who are great public speakers who can get up there and blow you away. You're just like... Man, drop the mic. That guy did it. You know, I, I don't, you know, if you ever listen to like some podcasts or videos or stuff like that, you hear somebody, you like, I never am getting in front of a group of people again because I can't do that. Um, and some of them are strong believers. They are committed to doing things the right way. There's also a lot of people who will use their natural gifts as a speaker, as a musician, as a motivator, as a leader to manipulate others for their own personal gain. And in our media-saturated world, they're all over TV, they're all over the Internet. And so you have to be really careful who you're listening to. So six years ago, um, actually six years ago today, I came to my first service at, with DCF, which was the name of our church before this. It was down in Tasty World. I told the story at the advance, so I won't go through it again. But it was six years ago today, like the exact day. That's kind of cool. Um, and, you know, and six years later, you know, we're still around, which is the longest I've been at a church in my whole life. So, um, but one of the things that, that I know that, that we've all talked about at different times, and, you know, and Derek has a good story about it, is that one of the things that our church does that a lot of church, churches don't is that we are willing to correct someone when they are off. Now, we don't do it in a brutal way most of the time. Uh, we, we do our best to be loving. But if somebody says something that's off base, we're going to like, I hear you, but. 
Um, it's like, I understand where you're coming from, but... Um, and they, that's done on theological issues. That's done on personal issues. If we, if we see that, like, sin in somebody's life and we know about it, we're going to do what we can to address that. Um, Chet has told me the story, this was before our time, that there was a guy who was cheating on his wife. So a couple of the elders went and staked out his work and dealt with it. You know, that's, that's kind of an extreme case, but those things happen. Um, hopefully it never gets to that point because you shouldn't be cheating on your wife ever. Um, but those types of things happen. They happen in the context of private conversation. They happen in the context of our house fellowships. Um, that's why we have a discussion to where if somebody says, hey, I, I think this says this, it's like, yeah, but have you looked at it like this because I really think it's over here. That happens, and that's part of how we learn. Um, we do it during our open time. We don't have to do this too often, but since we do have this open time in our service, it's entirely possible that somebody could stand up and just say something completely off base, and it has to be corrected right then because we can't let that stand. Now, most of the time, if it's just a little off, we may say something later on, say, hey, you know, I hear what you're saying, but that really wasn't quite on track, or... As happens sometimes, somebody will pointedly read a passage of Scripture right after that that says, yeah, this Scripture says that was wrong. Um, so uh, it happens, but um, sometimes it's better just to let Scripture speak. Um, but because it's important, correction is important. Paul wrote this really harsh letter to this church that he loved to correct them because it was that important. Because he loved him. He says, to show the great love that I have for you, I have to correct you on this. That's why it's important for us to correct when things are wrong. Like when, you're, when you're a parent and your children do something that is wrong, it is important to correct them for their safety, for their well-being, so that they will grow up in the way that they should go. But then there has to be forgiveness. When you're wronged, you have to be willing to offer forgiveness even when it's painful, even when the other person doesn't repent, they've never said they're sorry, even if they're, they're gone and passed away, you still have to forgive. It's not easy, but for your sake, for the sake of the church, it has to be done. Now, in Athens, in this town in particular, in most places around the world, the gospel is offensive. It's offensive to tell people that they can't do it on their own, that they're not good enough, that apart from Christ they can't do anything that's worthwhile. It can be the aroma of death to some people. The gospel can. Because it forces them to face those really hard realities. But the other side of it is the gospel can be the fragrance of life to a lot of people. Now, if we, if we are not sharing the knowledge of Him because we're afraid it's going to offend or we're afraid that it's going, to be, it's going to bring up hard things for other people, the other side of that is that we're letting people miss out on life. We're afraid of sharing death so we don't share life. And that's... That's a hard thing to deal with because you don't know how the other person is going to respond to it. But we, you know, 
we're to be that in that triumphal procession, spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. You know, fragrance just goes where it goes. I actually thought about bringing some incense or flowers in here today, but then I'd be sniffling even worse than I am and might run some of y'all out with the smell. But um, we should be the fragrance of life. For some, that's going to be the fragrance of death. But for others, it'll be the fragrance of life. And that's what we have to focus on. That has to be our motivation and our goal. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and we thank you that you did not leave us the way that we were. That you came down for us to forgive our sins. That you gave your son on the cross for us. And then even after we follow you, even though we mess up so many times, you you, you love us the way we are, but you love us enough not to leave us that way. And you work in us to make us more like you, to make us more like your son, to be slow to anger, quick to love, to be easy uh, for us to forgive others, as Paul did here, even though it was such a a targeted attack at him and uh, and who he was in you. He forgave, not just for his own sake, but for the sake of the church. And he encouraged them to restore this person who had repented. Lord, we pray that that any person who uh, who's committed anything like this uh, in this church or in our circle of friends, Lord, that we would be quick to restore them when they turn back to you. We'd be quick to forgive. Lord, we know that your message will be life to some and death to others. Lord, help us to trust those results to you, to be faithful and obedient in what you've called us to do, to share your fragrance, the aroma of who you are with everyone around us. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you love us, that you sent your word for us, that we can trust you. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.